If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's podcast, we have a conversation with the historian Emily Brand, whose latest book, The Fall of the House of Byron, follows the fates of the romantic poet Lord Byron's ancestors over three generations exploring a Georgian family tale of shipwrecks, murder and sex scandals. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, spoke with Emily down the line to find out more. So thanks so much, Emily, for joining us on the History Extra podcast. 
No, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Great. Um, so many of our listeners will be familiar with with Lord Byron, uh, the sixth Lord Byron, I should say. Um, his reputation uh, very famously being mad, bad and dangerous to know. Uh, but your new book shows there's a longer history of Byron's behaving badly. And um, is it fair to say that the apple didn't fall far from that tree? <laughs> I think... That does tend to be, um, it sounds like an obvious conclusion, but I do think to an extent that is true. Um, as you say, uh, the sixth Lord, George, the sixth Lord Byron, will be the the one that people most associate with that name. Um, and he inherits in 1798 and obviously goes on to forge this successful and notorious career, both in poetry and in just generally outraging society, you know, with all his exploits. Um, But there's been so much written about him, Uh, both he and his ancestors, they become sort of veiled in this myth created in his in his lifetime, uh, especially after his death in the sort of early 19th century. So what I wanted to do with my book is look back a couple of generations. It's not sort of a thousand year history of them, um, specifically to look back to the poet's grandfather's generation. And it follows um, this man, John Byron, and his two elder siblings from birth in the 1720s to almost the very end of the century when the poet inherits. So it's it's basically a prequel, really, if we'll be sort of Netflix series blockbuster about it. Um, but it's it's sort of a social, a group biography, really, of, of three Byron siblings, um, and it just follows them through wars and sex scandals, um, you know, there's a shipwreck and a murder trial thrown in there as well. So it's it's all about the drama, as the poet was himself. Um, so I think certainly in in that way, he uh, he inherited their sort of tendency for notoriety. But he, he took it one further, actually. I'll give him credit for that. <laughs> so what was your way into this book? Was it Byron himself or was it another another way in? Um, well, a lot, a lot of my research in the past has been about the history of love and sex and seduction and all of this during the long 18th century. So while I've been researching other things, uh, obviously the poet has just been constantly intruding basically on what I'm trying to do. He wouldn't leave me alone. So he's always been, he's always been lurking in the back of my mind really, but actually separately what drew me into this family group specifically was Isabella actually, who's the eldest sister of this um group of siblings and uh, I found a portrait of her by Thomas Gainsborough and I just fell in love with it immediately you know when you just see something (laughs) you're just enchanted and so I started digging around trying to find out who this woman was Um, and it turned out she was born a Byron and she became a countess Um, and in digging further about her family I then was learning about the stories of her two brothers one of whom was this so-called wicked Lord Byron and is sort of your archetypal villain um, according to tradition and then the younger brother John who was the poet's grandfather who was sort of presented as this gallant hero um, serving king and country and uh, yeah I couldn't the more I learned about different characters I just thought these all have to be these stories brought together and told as a family history really um, because it's just it's so gripping and I hope that I've done justice to their to their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, as you said, there's so much kind of scandal in the book to keep everyone entertained. Uh, and I wonder if we could just pick up on a few of those tales in a bit more detail. Um, so yeah. but perhaps we may maybe start with Isabella, who you, who you just mentioned was your kind of uh, way in. Uh, what was her yeah. kind of um, route? 
Well, I love Isabella. Um, obviously, I started with her, but I think as a personality as well, she's my favourite of the siblings. Um, I unearthed quite a lot of her unpublished correspondence um, and her voice and her spirit just really sparkles through in these letters. She was So she was the oldest sibling. She was born in 1791 and she was the only daughter as well. Um, but she was a really vivacious character. She, she loved writing poetry. She was a really talented singer. But then she was super interested in cooking and medicine and all this practical sort of almost scientific side of things as well. Um, but she didn't care at all for rank, you know, or she, she hated ceremony and all these sorts of trappings of, of being an aristocrat, even when she married to become a countess. And her, her sort of driving force, though, for, for her personality was that she was entirely led by her heart and she just spent her whole life just desperate to find true love really and she was rattling across the country and then rattling across Europe getting herself into all sorts of trouble looking for men looking for men basically um who had sort of previously said they were in love with her and uh, she was just got very caught up in that and um yeah I think that informed a lot of her adventures but so she runs through she, she marries, first of all, actually, quite sensibly, she does what her mum tells her. She marries the Earl of Carlisle, um, which is obviously very good for injecting a bit of uh, respectability and, and cash into the family. But um, she has her second husband, who she marries almost immediately after being widowed. And he's uh, far below her rank. He's 13 years younger than she is, very unsuitable. So they have this secret engagement. Um, and she sort of marries quickly before anyone can uh, dispute it. Following this marriage, she's just then totally charmed by another young baronet. She follows him off to Europe. That doesn't work out. Uh, and then she finds a German soldier who just totally charms her and they tour Europe together for, I think, approaching 15 years, just trying and failing to pass him off as a German baron. So she's just totally led by this romantic spirit um I suppose I was just totally caught up in that I loved it yeah absolutely and I, I know it's not necessarily a, it's definitely not a new revelation to say people had lots of children in the past but reading her story I was really struck by you know was it five children by the age of 28 she had yes yes um she was doing her dynastic duty there for sure <laughs> um and I think it's after uh, she's allowed. She has a son. Finally, I think he's the fourth child. She she has a son, so she's done her duty there. And and then her first husband, who's much much older than she is, he dies. So it's really there are all these stories of how after she was a widow, then she really came into her own to follow this sort of pleasure filled um, lifestyle. So mm. uh, yeah, can we talk a bit then? Because obviously her behaviour did attract comment at the time. But how reflective mm. was her story of kind of? you know, attitudes or pleasures of the day or or was she kind of uh, out on her own a bit? I think certainly she was um, very, she was chastised for this behaviour, not least by her son uh, back home. She's, you know, she's travelling around Europe with this con man German soldier, essentially, as, as they can see it, um, into her 50s and 60s. So she's sort of gallivanting off living this life. Her family, her children at home and, and their friends and their sort of political allies are all 
desperately writing to her saying, you know, you need to come back, you need to leave this man and um, come back and we'll look after you. But she just wouldn't because she was she was happy with him, with, with the life she was living. Um, so, yes, I mean, the amazing thing about Isabella is that when she eventually does come back to England and, and this um, man is, is sort of scared off almost... Um, the icing on the cake, really, is that when she finally comes back, she's dragged back in semi-disgrace. She she writes and publishes an etiquette guide for young, soon-to-be-married women, which is such a bold move, <laughs> considering that it didn't tally up with her own behaviour for any of her life. I don't know if she was a bit deluded or, or it's just a, you know, tenacity on her part, but it was, it was a successful etiquette guide, but... Um, as letters of the time of people who were buying it have shown, it was quite a lot that they knew her reputation and sort of it was quite a joke that she was presuming then to tell young women how best to live their lives and how to be a faithful wife. Um, so I think, you know, it wasn't, it was a time there were, there were affairs um, as sort of divorce court records show and, and the gossip newspaper gossip will show but I think she was just so brazen about her um intent to follow life as she wished I do think she stands out a bit actually mm-hmm. and, and she obviously had plenty of kind of personal tribulations inside her own family as well to deal with you already mentioned the villainy of her um elder brother William and and John's story as well I wondered if we could pick up on his story because it really is a, a really remarkable one it really is. I think that this that John's story is probably the one that um, most people will find the most sort of thrilling. Um, so he was he would become the poet's grandfather, John Byron. Um, he was the third child, so Isabella's uh, younger brother. Um, he was born in 1723, and you know he was the second son. So they're stereotypically destined for the military. This is what he does. So he goes into the navy at 13. And he's launched into this amazing career almost immediately um, on his second voyage. He is, uh, his ship is shipwrecked um, and there's this subsequent survival story of him sort of making his way through life uh, in this unfamiliar coast of South America and trying to make their way back up to, through Chile um, and, and back to England. But this takes the best part of five and a half years um, and everything that can go wrong goes wrong um, they're facing starvation they're facing uh, obviously hostilities from um, indigenous peoples and uh, he's bitten by a spider a poisonous spider and you know there's just everything that could happen does and uh, he he publishes a narrative his own account of this story when he's much older and it's immediately a sensation um, and it's immediately picked out as the most harrowing story of the entire century um, rivaling any of the fiction that was as, was coming out in that time as well um, and this is just the beginning of his career I think it is probably the most um, remarkable episode um, but then he goes on he's gets a very distinguished career in the navy through wars um, and undertaking voyages of exploration as well. He directly paves the way for the voyages of Captain Cook. Um, and it's also John who who claims the Falklands for Britain as well in 1765. Um, so he sort of kicks off that whole controversy as well. So it's this career, and it goes right through to the American Revolution, where a number of 
future presidents are sort of keeping an eye on him and, and willing him to fail. So it's it's just fantastic, really. Um, he's, as I say, very much seen as the gallant military hero of the family. He's achieving glory for Britain. Um, but then he's also, he's coming to the rescue of his family members when they need bailing out as well, which is basically all the time. So it's he's quite this beleaguered, um, reliable family character. Um so yeah, I mean, in historical terms, he's he's gone down in history as Foul Weather Jack Byron. This is the nickname that he sort of gets as part of the Byronic family myths. Um, and he gets this nickname during the American Revolutionary Wars because he's so uh, constantly pursued and thwarted by storms at every turn. So... I mean, when reading the book, I think that I can give hints that he's he's obviously not a hero to everybody, um, obviously not the people he's at war with, and certainly not to his poor, long-suffering wife um, as well. He's, it, the reality is more complicated, but he does have a, a truly gripping life story, certainly. Mm-hmm. And can we say a little more about his his own the way his own personal. Um his own personal life was commented on in in the uh, sources of the day. Definitely. I mean, he, he he was very much a liked figure, actually. And, and when he came back from this shipwreck adventure, um, he gained a lot of respect from uh, his colleagues at the Admiralty for this because of his behaviour. Um, part of the story is that there is a, uh, after the shipwreck, there is a mutiny and the vast part of the crew basically mutiny against the captain and, and take the, the little longboat that they've been building and, and sail off, uh, leaving the captain to die, basically. And John is one of the few people who stays behind, stays loyal to the captain and sort of doesn't necessarily agree with his plan, but, you know, he's doing his duty sort of thing. So um, by the time they make it back to England, this is very well looked on professionally um, as a sort of gallant, handsome young man who's endured all of this and come back quite chipper and ready to uh, get married and then go straight back off to war again, um, obviously serves him very well in the press. And and this reputation that he, he makes for himself by his early 20s sort of continues. He's really well respected. Um, he achieves some feats in battle during the Seven Years' War that uh, really help his reputation and, um, yeah, I mean, even when he sort of gets involved in his own little uh, personal sex scandal, um, when it is reported, it's reported with sort of winks and, oh, you know, he is a one kind of, his wife's always pregnant and uh, such a good adventurer as well. So I think even even then, the public was quite inclined to um, look kindly on him and and his reputation at the time and after has always been of a very gallant and noble military man, um, but he was just super unfortunate with the way uh, you know storms follow him about and sort of thwarted his attempts to um, serve the country. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so he's hiding out at his sister's house in France and he's writing her these letters and they are hugely... Uh, sexually charged I'll say um, and I think it's quite difficult on reading them not to conclude that they were they were having an incestuous sexual relationship this episode is brought to you by indeed we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So if if that's one Jack, we've we've also got another Jack in this account, Mad Jack Byron, who was yes. the son of uh, John and, and, as you say, long-suffering Sophia. Um, yes. His was a, a quite a different tale. Yes. Well, I think um, in in tracing the tales, I think Jack, uh, who was the poet's father, his story really takes a lot more from um, that of his his uncle William, who was the Wicked Lord. So these two characters are very much um, presented as as villains. They're, they're terrible with money, very into gambling, very into womanising and affairs um, with a bit of sort of bad temper and, and violence thrown in. Um, I think part of that must be due to the fact that they were both the eldest sons and heirs, you know, they're brought up to feel like they are the important, most important one of the family brood. So, yeah, he, he's he's the eldest son of John, um, although I think he's the fourth or fifth child. But he, he's born, um, 1757 is the first record of his existence. Um, and he sort of, the records are quite patchy for his early life, but he, he's supposed to have gone to a military school um in London and there's some evidence that he might have um he joined the army fairly young and then that he might have been sent over to um Antigua to get sort of involved in in sort of issues that are going on out there um but the the first one of the earliest records that we have for him is is um one of the first scandals that he's embroiled in and a major scandal for the family in general, which is his affair at the age, I think he's about 24, with um, a married lady, Carmarthen. 
and he falls into this affair. She's slightly older. She's got a few children um, and she falls pregnant very quickly and she seems to have no qualms about once that this sort of news is out about saying to her husband, you know, I've been having this affair with this soldier and I'm pregnant and it's not yours. So these this couple are able to essentially um, elope together. They go off down to the south coast and try and hide um, to escape this uh, her husband's fury. And essentially... He, the, the husband is is forced to um, file for divorce and, and she seems very keen to stick with Jack as well. So it does seem that at least on her side it was um, a love match. But this, because it then goes to the divorce courts, everything becomes very public. Um, accounts of the case, which includes all these amazing details about how they've been caught in bed together and Jack's been sort of half-naked snoring in in Lady Carmarthen's bed and all of these great details is not only read aloud in the court but then made into um, sort of transcribed and printed and published as well and people were were desperate to get their hands on these so so his sort of main introduction into society is is this scandal Um, and some some take to him semi-kindly in that the the blame falls on Amelia on the on the errant wife more than him others are absolutely disgusted by him and they say he's a terrible awkward stupid fellow who just couldn't help boasting about his conquest so um yeah it's a bit of a mixed bag really his first public reputation but from this point really um because of his behavior with spending and with um sexual escapades um, his his reputation only gets worse. Um, but actually, you know, this this is mostly in terms of what's on the public record, I suppose. I'm talking about what reputation he's built up, but one of the most fascinating batches of um, source material that I came across in, in researching was um, quite a large stash of letters from Jack to his elder sister, Fanny Lee, who was married, um, they'd been living together briefly uh, at her house in France. And this is, at this point, um, Jack's in his mid-30s. He's had a second wife. Um, they've had a son together who is the, the young future poet. Um, he has abandoned them. Um, you know, little George, his son, is is about two and a half, three. Um, and so he's hiding out at his sister's house in France and he's writing her these letters and they are hugely uh, sexually charged, I'll say. Um, and I think it's quite difficult on reading them not to conclude that they were they were having an incestuous sexual relationship. Um, so it was quite grim reading, some of it. Um, he's, a, he's a very unusual character, super sort of um, very entitled, very, very arrogant uh, the letters are filled with news of his sort of sexual escapades and the acts he likes to do and with what sort of woman and and essentially on having read them it can you know it's quite clear that he's trying to make his sister jealous essentially because it's also full of these other phrases about how she's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen and and that when he's having sex he's thinking of her face essentially (laughs) so um yeah it's it's unusual and and it's um, 
sort of difficult to then not make comparisons with the poet's life um, and his own incestuous affair with his half-sister Augusta who was Jack's other child so of Jack's two surviving children they they both fell into this um, sexual relationship with each other as well so it's quite a tangled tangled web there Um, it doesn't help with the family tree it's a lot of cousins marrying and also siblings having sex with each other so I I was going to ask about the cousins actually because that seems to be a a bit more common in this period even first cousins marrying so Mm. what what more broadly was kind of the the societal norm in in the 18th century where where, what you're writing about yeah first cousins at this point totally fine (laughs) (laughs) um obviously uh the the poet's grandparents so that's that's john um Fowler the jack byron and and his cousin sophia they were first cousins their their mothers were sisters and this seems to have been um you know there's, there's not any sign that they were especially marked out for each other but as soon as he gets back from his adventures in south america he he is reunited with this sister who this cousin sorry who is 17 all of a sudden and um they were, by all accounts, very fond of each other, um, and that would have been totally fine. Uh, in cases where, you know, the, the financial status wasn't quite as even, it would be different, I would say. Um, with John and Sophia, they were of equal sort of standing. She was very beautiful. He had a great reputation. Financially, they were sort of even so it was fine um but there is a later instance of cousin marriage um a generation later where william william's son william jr i'll call him um is sort of set up with this intended bride who who has a fortune but just on the eve of the wedding he elopes with his cousin juliana who is john's daughter who has really not much money to her name at all and this causes a sensation um and and a scandal among the family but this is because william jr has thrown away the fortune um it's not because they're cousins it's uh but um yeah so i would say that marriage with cousins is was quite normal for the time it wouldn't really raise an eyebrow at all but uh siblings is is another it's another Mm -hmm. deal altogether Mm -hmm. absolutely um so there's plenty of, of scandal there in the book, in your account, to, to get your teeth into. Um, it's really fascinating. Uh, but a, a constant a, a constant feature that kind of is ever-present in your book is Newstead Abbey, which many people will know as, as the poet's mm. um, ancestral seat. Uh, can you tell us about your research of the Abbey and how, how that evolved in this period as well? Yes, so... Um the Abbey, I mean, my story begins in 1720, really, and that's the the, the marriage of the fourth lord. Um, he's this sort of ageing old fellow who's, whose heirs have all died and he's looking for a young new wife to sort of revive his dynasty, um, which he does, and, and there obviously the, these set of siblings happen. His, his other project of this time was revitalising the Abbey, and it was his absolute Hart's project you know he was pouring money into making it this very elegant mansion and it was very much admired um and especially for its artistic collection it was full of absolute treasures 
So the fourth lord had built built up, you know, they weren't wildly wealthy, but it was a very sort of elegant, up-and-coming, very much admired place. Um, and then what really happens, so his son inherits in 1736, and then when he comes of age, um, I think it's 1743, all of a sudden he has control of this estate and the, the fortune which, when he inherits, um, even after he's paid for all of his siblings' education and, and paid for his father's funeral and all of this, in modern money he has still cash assets of well over a million pounds, um, plus all of his lands, all of his the estate at Newstead, um, you know, plus the annual rents that are coming in every year. So he's very comfortable, the Fifth Lord, when he, he first inherits. But what happens... For his first 20 years, he he rattles through this fortune with such enthusiasm that by the time he's in his 30s, the estate is in real trouble. Um, So over the course of the Fifth Lord's life, basically, Newstead Abbey itself goes from a very much admired, beautiful, entirely well-kept mansion to, by 1798, when, when the Fifth Lord is in his 70s, he's sort of living... In, a, in the bare bones of this abbey, that there has been everything has been sold. The artistic collection is gone. Um, a lot of the um, parts of the roofing are falling in. There are cattle staying in the sort of undercroft underneath because they're trying to keep them in from the cold and um, getting a bit of money for storing hay in the great hall. All of this, so it's just a real. It is a real downfall at this period, um, and and it is really. It's because of this one person who's inherited and just is totally unable to control his spending. Mm. So the the young Byron, uh, the poet, uh, inherits when he's very young and he's kind of, I guess, fair to Mm. say, captivated by this um, family history. And certainly it... Oh, absolutely. Do you think, how much do you think it informs his own notorious behaviour? How much do you think he was influenced by these these legends of his family past? Mm, Yeah, I think... I think it's really important. I mean, one question that I've been asked a few times is how much does the poet inherit from, you know, his personality and all of this from his family? I think on a, on a genetic side, there's really, there's reasonable evidence to suggest that the poet suffered from some sort of mental illness. So in his letters, he's he's often mentions these sort of suicidal thoughts, fears of going mad. Um, you know, he could be very cruel to to people to women especially once they'd sort of fallen out of favor and he has this real obsession with his weight as well so he's the poet has been retrospectively diagnosed with uh, manic depression and with bipolar disorder um anorexia as well and i'm not necessarily one for sort of definitive retrospective diagnosis but i think there is something there and um the poet himself thought that the passions were inherited. Um, he, he said, uh, I can't remember who it was to now in, his, in a letter, but he says, um, it's ridiculous to say that we do not inherit our passions as well as the gout or any other disorder. So um, he thought himself that he got his melancholy and his sort of suicidal thoughts and tendencies from his mother's family, where they, you know, they have their own very violent and um, um, depressive stories amongst them. And he implied often that he he thought that his violent temper um, and risk of insanity came from the Byrons. So 
genetically we know now that um, predisposition towards these sorts of things can be inherited. Um, so it's quite tempting, and, and some recent articles have sort of pointed out uh, specific figures in the family who introduced this bad blood, which doesn't convince me entirely, but um, I think that almost all of the surviving evidence for actual insanity in the family dates from the poet's time or after. I don't think there's anything um, sort of really convincing during the, the lifetimes of these 18th century figures themselves. But as you say, I think even more important than that perhaps is to remember that the poet was so fascinated by his ancestry. And, and when he came to Newstead Abbey when he was just 10, he was immediately captivated by it, just really enthralled by this history that he hadn't been confronted with before. And so he immediately, as a young boy, he, he populates the abbey with these ghosts of his, his valiant ancestors and all their amazing deeds, um, some of which came from... Uh, history books some have came from tales told by old servant at the abbey but I think a lot of it was imagined as well um so he sort of immediately starts creating for himself these myths about his ancestors and it new said itself um and his family history inspires some of his very earliest poetry um which is filled with ideas about how he will always carry his ancestors with him wherever he goes um, with pride. So it's undoubtedly their escapades sort of undoubtedly influenced him in this way, um, though it is a bit difficult to disentangle, you know, what what he's sort of absorbing and cultivating himself. So, for example, he, he said during his school life that he really associated violence and duelling with the Byron name, um, because he'd read about his great uncle's duel um, or dispute, tavern dispute and murder trial. And so this sort of gave him a license to beat up kids in the schoolyard. You know, he, he sort of used that as a justification for, for sort of rowdy behaviour at school. Um, and, and similarly, uh, at the same time, he, he, I think he did genuinely wonder and fear that he was inheriting some tendency towards outright insanity um so he scares again school friends with tales of how his father had cut his own throat and that's how he died which was totally false but um you know he liked telling these stories so i think even if it wasn't genetic at all his own understanding of himself um and and how he directed his behavior towards others was definitely early on quite strongly colored by what he'd learned about these ancestral characters and probably gave him a bit of felt like he had a bit of license to act in this mad, bad, dangerous way as well. That was Emily Brand. The Fall of the House of Byron, Scandal and Seduction in Georgian England is out now, published by John Murray. Emily has also written a feature for our website, which you can find at historyextra.com forward slash scandalous hyphen Byrons. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Sunday for a special episode where Peter Caddick Adams will be explaining everything you ever wanted to know but were too afraid to ask about D-Day. Um.